It's Monday, December 20th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. A new treatment known as optogenetic therapy has given a blind man some of his vision back. Light-activated proteins were inserted into eye nerve cells and paired with special goggles that emit flashes of amber-hued light. This combination allowed the man with a degenerative eye disease to see and count objects when he could previously just detect some light. Tina Hesman Say, senior writer at Science News, joins us for more. Next, ghost kitchens or virtual restaurants have taken over America's restaurants. The new world is search-optimized and data-driven. Often these restaurants have no storefront and no place to dine in. Instead, they can be found on food delivery apps like Uber Eats and Grubhub. Some experts say that these virtual restaurants will be a $1 trillion industry in the next 10 years. At a time when restaurants are struggling due to the pandemic, this expansion can be a lifeline for many. Adam Chandler, contributor to Marker, joins us for the rise of Ghost Kitchen. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. So what these researchers have done is taken a gene that will produce a light-sensitive protein, and they put them in these other nerve cells that are still there in the retina. And so now those nerve cells can respond to light. Joining us now is Tina hessman Say, senior writer at Science News. Thanks for joining us, Tina. Well, thank you for having me. I want to talk about a really interesting story. They were doing gene-based therapy on a French man, and they were able to partially restore his vision they're using these light-activated proteins. They insert them in his eye nerve cells. He has to use special goggles with this, but they were able to uh, get him to see a couple of things. I think he was able to uh, see and count objects, maybe see the outlines of a pedestrian crosswalk. All, all very good for him, obviously. So, Tina, help us walk through some of the story. What are we seeing with this gene-based therapy? Yeah, so this is a type of therapy that's called optogenetic therapy. It's a little different from some of the gene therapies you might have heard about before, which replace a faulty copy of a gene with a healthy copy. And it's also different from gene editing, which goes in and fixes a particular mutation. So uh, those, those types of therapy are good for people who still have some of the cells in their retina that that collect the light. Um, those those are you've heard of probably rod and cone cells. Right. Um, they're also called photoreceptors. So those cells um, die in people with these degenerative eye diseases, including the one that this man has. Um, and when they die, you lose your vision. But there are still other nerve cells in the retina that are still alive and still capable of working, but they're just not getting signals. So what these researchers have done is taken a gene that will produce a light-sensitive protein, and they put them in these other nerve cells that are still there in the retina. And so now those nerve cells can respond to light. Yeah, it's so but, it's it's so interesting because before this man could see some light, but he couldn't pick out motion or really 
identify objects. And with this now, he's, as I mentioned, he's been able to pick out a couple of moving objects and see some things. The way things work in the eye, they're layered. So with this gene therapy, they're targeting the far back of the eye, which is sending those signals to the brain. Yeah, that's right. So how those cells um, that they put these this, this light-sensitive gene into, uh, they're called ganglion cells, and they're sort of the, the last line of the retina before you send off the signals about what you're seeing to the brain. So normally, they would get varying signals from the other layers uh, in the retina, and they would, they would fire off in pulses. So the ganglion cell doesn't know what to do with a constant source of light. So that's why you have to send pulses to it, because it responds to change in light levels. They've done this type of optogenetic uh, therapy before with different light sources. It used to be more of like a blue light source, but uh, I guess it was very straining for a lot of people. So with this one, they use more of an amber light source, and that's why they use the goggles uh, to put that light source in there as well. So just a lot of interesting things and modifications that they had to do just to get him to be able to see a little bit. Yeah, so so these goggles actually take advantage of a lot of technology that's been developed for cameras, for instance, um, setting light levels, because your eye can respond to a huge range of light levels from the dimmest starlight to the brightest sunny day at the beach. Um, but these proteins that are now responding to light only respond to a very narrow window. And so the goggles have to like take all these different light levels and put it into uh, that narrow band that the, these proteins respond to. And so now with all of this, how optimistic are doctors for the future? And the man himself, has he had any reaction to being able to pick out certain things now? Um, so the man only speaks French, so I wasn't able to talk with him specifically. Uh, but, you know, the doctors are, they're cautiously optimistic. This is, you know, one person. Um, they have they have done this with, um, I think they said, nine other people so far in this clinical trial. Um, and this man got the lowest dose of these uh, light-activated proteins that that they felt would be um, workable. And so other people in the trial are getting higher doses, so they may have better responses. But with COVID, uh, it was very difficult for them to come into the lab to do the testing and training that they needed to do because this is not like a therapy that you can just go in, have them shoot something into your eye, and then you can see. It takes months, actually, for the proteins to be made, and then it takes a while to train the brain to make sense of what you're seeing, because there are very few cells that contain these proteins, and, you know, they're getting it in a different um information sense than they normally would when you see. So it takes a while for the brain 
to to figure all of that out. Um, yeah. Well, so hopefully we'll have more data on these other people soon. But you know, this is this is a great first step. Tina Hessman Say, senior writer at Science News. Thank you very much for joining us. You're welcome. If you open up any of your delivery apps and see what restaurants are around you, you're going to see a lot of a lot of options that you've never heard of before that are secretly or not so secretly being run by restaurants that you may otherwise order from on a regular day. Joining us now is Adam Chandler, author of Drive Through Dreams, journalist based in New York and contributor to Marker. Thanks for joining us, Adam. Thanks for having me. Wanted to talk about a, a very interesting thing that's been developing for a while, kind of accelerated through the pandemic, and looks like it could be an important part of the future of the restaurant industry. And we've talked about this before, ghost kitchens, virtual kitchens, cloud kitchens. It's got a lot of different names, but basically these are kitchens and, and so-called restaurants that are popping up. They don't really have a storefront. You can't go dine there, but they're doing delivery. So you can find them on DoorDash, Uber Eats, Grubhub, things like that. And they're catered specifically to the demands of the community there. There's a lot of stuff that goes into this. And it seems to be an increasing part of the restaurant industry and the future of it. So tell us a little bit uh, more about this, Adam. It's an interesting development for sure. What what dining has um, undergone in the last few years has been a real move away from in-person dining, like going into a store and being waited on um, has been replaced kind of in this Netflix and chill era. And so what we've been seeing is people are ordering out more. People are getting office catering more back when we were going to our offices and uh, people prefer takeout to being out in the world. And so Businesses have invested a lot of money in creating an infrastructure to cater to people who aren't going to go inside and dine anymore. And obviously, during the pandemic, that's accelerated rapidly. It's interesting that the really the only growth that has happened in restaurants has been in food consumed away from restaurants. Obviously, the pandemic accelerated all that stuff. You made mention in the article, it's kind of like if 90% of the U.S. population started ordering exclusively online dinner last year. That's not the only piece alone. You know, there's small mom and pops that are doing this. There's big chains like Applebee's that are doing ghost kitchens. Restaurants are expanding, playing with the possibility of different menus. Uh, there's a lot of different avenues for uh, available to restaurants. It's a surprising trend in that it's so unexpected that this uh, very personal and very transparent food system that we've kind of been obsessed with, we've been obsessed with being able to see uh, when we go to say Chipotle, our orders kind of made in front of us and just have a kitchen visible. That's been a big trend in food in the last 10 years. And now what we're seeing is that restaurants are moving more, I guess, away from that in uh launching these brands that don't really have any storefront presence and just kind of exist online only. And it's a surprise if you really look into it. If you open up any of your delivery apps and see what restaurants are around you, you're going to see a lot of a lot of options that you've never heard of before that are secretly or not so secretly being run by restaurants that you may otherwise order from on a regular day. Yeah. And uh, as you mentioned in the article, a lot of chicken wings. We'll we'll get into that in just a moment. Uh, You mentioned Chipotle. They opened their very first ghost kitchen in New York and you went uh, out to go check it out. How was that experience? 
Well, you know, it was a funny trip north of New York City for about an, to, uh, an hour to go to the Ghost Kitchen Chipotle. It looks exactly like any other Chipotle, except nobody's dining inside of it. So it's for third-party delivery platform drivers to pick up orders and deliver them. It's for catering orders to kind of enter a separate entrance and pick up a huge order to go. And then it's for people who are just passing by and ordered on their apps. It doesn't accept cash. You can't order in the store and you can't eat in the store. And that's kind of what's surreal about it is that it's the entire Chipotle experience without eating inside of a Chipotle, which you know, it's always been its own kind of special thing. It's very crowded in there. You go through the line and you pick out exactly what you want. So really is a diversion from their normal standard operating orders. Let's talk about costs when things like this happen, because opening a restaurant is expensive. We, we've heard the stories. We know that it's very expensive. But to do something like this, a digital kitchen, a virtual restaurant, it's a fraction of the cost, really. And let's say you already have an existing kitchen if you're, you know, one of these restaurants like an Applebee's or something, and maybe you're branching off into something else. I mean, the cost of opening a digital kitchen at that point is even less. That's exactly why it's such an attractive proposition is that if you already have kitchen space and during off hours or certain days of the week, you're not seeing huge rush of of people coming in to dine. And this has happened a lot in the last few years. There's a great opportunity in having your kitchen serve as another virtual brand that generates profit by offering things that people want to order and have delivered to their houses. Now, one of the, as I keep mentioning, you know, there's a lot of bigger businesses that are getting on this train. We heard last year about a a place called Pasquale's Pizza and Wings, only to realize that it ended up being Chuck E. Cheese that was (laughs) selling out pizza and wings. Uh, That was a pretty funny one. I mentioned Applebee's already. They're getting in on this game. Uh, I saw a story just uh, today. Guy Fieri is opening up a hundred flavor town kitchens. He's calling them, you know, all across the country uh, to get in on this virtual kitchen craze. One of the other things that you did too was looking into, you know, you opened your apps and kind of did some sleuthing just to see how many virtual kitchens they might be out there. And there are a few telltale signs of these virtual kitchens. As I mentioned, there was a lot of chicken wings that you ended up noticing. Right. I know that chicken wings are a really popular ghost kitchen concept because they don't really require a lot of space in a kitchen. Um, You know, they're very popular. They have high profit margins and it's pretty easy to transport Buffalo wings in a, you know, in a to-go container. It's not, it's not a really delicate dish that requires a lot of finesse. So that's one thing about it that makes it popular. And so I decided to open my seamless app and just look for wings. And when I, when I did that, I saw a lot of listings around me in New York that were a ton of places that I had never seen before out in my neighborhood around me. And by looking at their address, I could kind of sleuth out which restaurants were serving these wings. So one of them was an Applebee's. One of them was a local diner that I go to around the corner from me that has ventured into uh, a side hustle of serving wings. Uh, Another was uh, a tavern that probably doesn't have a lot of in-person business right now that's looking for a way to survive during the pandemic. And then another one which I ended up ordering from was um, Nathan's Famous, which is the hot dog chain that everyone knows from Coney Island. Yeah, definitely. That has had wings on their menu for a long time, but decided to spin off into another brand uh, that serves out of the exact same kitchen and delivers chicken wings. 
And Nathan's Famous said that they've opened their 100th ghost kitchen already. So, I mean, this just kind of illustrates how long this trend has been going. And obviously, it's it's working for them if they're going that far with it to keep going this way. The other very interesting part of this has to do with the data that goes into this. You know, we're getting a lot of data from Grubhub, Uber Eats, all all the the ordering apps and everything that we, you know, sign over our data to, obviously. (laughs) But, you know, they're able to kind of pinpoint what the community wants at that moment. If a neighborhood, a couple cities very close to each other keep looking for burritos, let's say, well, they can then go to a company, they can go to a restaurateur, somebody, hey, maybe you might want to think about opening a virtual kitchen that just does specialty burritos because everybody is going to want these in your area. Right. It's a foolproof way to kind of game the system using data. And it's, you know... It seems a little sinister and it feels a little sinister to some. Um, Other people might think of it as just smart business. But um, the fact that your data is kind of being used in this way is effective for better and for worse. It's really compelling to think if you are somebody who is looking for vegan food or have a strict diet that needs something specific and enough people in your area are, are looking for vegan food, that might actually lead to the development of an option in your neighborhood if um, there are enough people around you searching for something in the right apps and someone mines the data properly and decides to approach a kitchen that may be doing something else and say, look, there are a lot of people in your, in your zip code who have an interest in vegan food. Why don't you open up a spinoff and see how it goes? And it's proven to be smart. Specifically, Uber, their founder has spent $130 million uh, the past couple of years getting spaces to set up these ghost kitchens. They have a startup, I guess it's called Cloud Kitchens. They can even create their own restaurants, just hire a little bit of staff and you know they're just making more money for themselves. It's totally interesting the way that happens. So the last thing I want to ask you about is, well, what is the future of these ghost kitchens? Now we're talking about how this trend is just picking up so much. And I, I love the line in your article, culinary innovation and experimentation ahead will be digital. We're going to use all this data, point to what the community wants, and then, you know, you're off to the races to develop the food for it. Exactly. It really does kind of change the experience that we know of. When you think about restaurants, you think about the passing down of traditions, um, what really someone is passionate about cooking, maybe something they grew up with, maybe something that they've developed over time. And it kind of inverts that by saying, we already know what everyone in your general vicinity wants to eat. Why don't you just make that? It really is turning what is kind of a passion project into something that is kind of a strictly business grab. And that's, for some people, that's a really smart way to take the risk out of a really risky business. And that's kind of what ghost kitchens come down to. Running restaurants is difficult. The real estate, the labor costs there's a lot of risk involved. And so by taking the risk out of this, we may actually be creating a more sustainable restaurant. It's just a question of, you know, whether that's ultimately what we want. Adam Chandler, author of drive through dreams, journalist based in New York and contributor to marker. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.